Good morning. It's Guy Adami. <laughs> it's ten. No, see, I fooled you all. You're like, what's going on? I'm not as predictable as you think. You heard the music. You know what time it's Thursday at 1046. I'm Guy. That's Dan. Love the music. I am fired up for a number of different reasons. Today's at 1046 is brought to you by our presenting sponsors, FactSet, financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow. And of course, Open Exchange. They manage virtual meetings that matter for the top companies around the world. Dan, did I did I surprise you there with my cadence? You did. I thought we had a new sponsor, PBS. I thought that was like going to be something on the public broadcasting network. But thank you, Guy, for turning it up here. We got a lot to do in 14 oh, yeah, minutes here, do. buddy. Yeah, yeah we, we do. do. Yes, we do. And the first thing I want to talk about, I'm certain that these are some really smart individuals, Dan. This Palantir group, this Lonsdale and Peter Thiel and all these folks, why in the world? Would they buy $50.7 million worth of gold? Not the ETF, Dan, gold bars. That comes out to probably about 300 or so 100-ounce bars. I find this to be fascinating. Is it a preparation for a, get ready, black black swan events. Yeah, I did the air quotes there, Dan. Yeah, well, you see what that is or what that means in that uh, slide that Amanda put together. And you know the answer to that question, guy. These are very smart guys. They are also, you know, a little, uh, there's second derivative thinkers, third derivative thinkers, that sort of thing. I think when you look at a company like Palantir with a $50 billion market cap with two and a half billion dollars in cash and, and very little debt. I mean, this is really just a diversification yes. mechanism, I think. Um, but it is going one step further. It's talking about this is deliverable to them. They can take possession of this. Um, in an interview, I think somebody, maybe it was their CFO, used the term, like you said, black swan, and they're um, diversifying in other alternative investments. So to me, I do think it's a great clickable headline here. It's probably not particularly meaningful. You tell me, you know a lot more about gold. If every uh, major institution, publicly traded company wanted to diversify their balance sheet and buy physical gold, that would be a difficult trick, wouldn't it be? It would be extraordinarily difficult. And to your point, I mean, $50 million for a company of this size is really not a big deal. And even if they made a five-fold on the back of it, think about it, $250 million is not a big deal. But what is the statement that it's making? And oh, by the way, this was the first foray. Are there going to be more? My sense is there will be. I think this is just the first of many. And I don't think, by the way, this precludes them from getting into crypto as well. It's just really interesting that, you know, with something they probably needed board approval to do, they decided to buy gold bars and not the ETF. Now, with that said, we should take a look at the gold chart because it's been pretty awful, obviously, since last August. This time, effectively last year, when it made an all-time high. Gold's been in this very defined downtrend the lines are great. I want to thank the folks from FactSet for the charts. But we're in the middle of this downtrend, Dan. We haven't been able to break out. I thought we did about a month or so ago. That was a false breakout. We find ourselves here with the dollar rallying. That's good news for gold in terms of the headline, but doesn't move the needle. And where are you in terms of the gold trade? Well, I guess you can't look at gold and not talk about Bitcoin. We're going to slide to that chart in one second here. But you see that well-defined uh, downtrend. You did uh, identify that breakout. You actually had a great call guy a few months ago playing off the bottom end of that downtrend. But that just happened to coincide with Bitcoin getting cut in half mm -hmm. here. And I think that relationship is the really important one. And you just mentioned, well, I wonder if it was easier for Palantir to get their board to approve buying gold or physical gold than buying Bitcoin. Maybe that's the case. 
space, but it could be a precursor. You and I talk to a lot of Bitcoin people and they say, listen, there's a world where gold and Bitcoin can both live and they can both be the store of value in this inflation hedge. The only thing is, is that the gap between the market caps of the two are going to narrow, right? If Bitcoin is about one and a half trillion, I'd say at its max um, a few months ago and gold, where, where was it? 12 trillion or something like that guy. I mean, at some point you see them converging. I would hope so. And I think, listen, you talk to a lot of people. I know Michael Saylor doesn't think that. He actually thinks that gold is sort of a floundering. I, that's my words, not his yeah. asset. And the fact that, you know, crypto is probably going to be well north of gold in terms of market cap. You know, you mentioned gold probably at 10 and a half, 11 billion dollars, excuse me, what trillion. $11 trillion dollar market cap, right? And he thinks that Bitcoin could go north of 50 trillion. We'll see if wow. he's right. And Bitcoin sort of sort of doing the sideways thing here around 45,000 that bounced off those lows. Tom Lee talked about buying the strength through the 200 day moving average. We'll see if he proves to be correct. I do think there's an environment where both gold and Bitcoin can work. We'll see if that comes to fruition this fall. But we wanted to start with the Palantir because I found it fascinating that they bought the physical bars, not the ETF. But that brings us now to our first equity call. And that's NVIDIA, something we've talked about on 1046 a number of times. Well, guess what? We're seeing analysts raise their price target on the back of that earnings release yesterday. We talked about it on Fast Money. I'll say this, Dan, I know you have thoughts. Both gaming and data center revenues were better than expected. Um, margins came out better than expected. This is an expensive company on valuation, but this is one of those few um, chip companies that seem to have the growth that back it up. Thoughts on NVIDIA, Dan? Well, if you look at those two areas that you just mentioned, data center and gaming, and I think those were really bright spots, let's say, in, in the, techno, you know, the tech economy over the last, let's call it 18, 19 months during the pandemic. And I think that they benefited tremendously. The stock is up 45% um, percent on the year. It's down a little bit from those recent highs, I think close to what, 200, 204, something like that. Guy, I'll just mention this. And this is why, this is a great company and they are firing on all cylinders and they are behind some major technological um, secular shifts, if you will. Um, and they've navigated some of these supply demand sort of bottlenecks that we've seen of some of their competitors um, very, very well. But maybe it's as good as it gets. And when I look out to next year, I'm looking at basically expectations for 10% earnings growth and about 12% sales growth. And I say to myself, trading at about 42 times earnings and about 16 times sales, that is really expensive for a $480 billion market cap company. That's right. I mean, it's trading 16 times revenue to your point. I mean, you can make an argument this is just too expensive on a number of different valuation metrics. And you're right. I said it last time on Fast Money. I'll say it here. That earnings report yesterday should give us the impetus to get through those recent double tops of 209 or thereabouts. If it doesn't, like if it does not happen over the next couple of trading days, there are going to be a lot of people saying, you know what? as good as it gets, something you mentioned all along, and maybe the yeah. stock needs to do a back and fill. We've seen it before a number of times in NVIDIA, and maybe we're on the precipice now. I still want to like the story, but I'm not going to, I'm going to be quick to pull the ripcord if over the next couple of trading sessions, we can't get through sort of that 205, 210 level. Yeah, yeah, I'll just say this. There's very few charts that look like this in the market right now, Guy. It just broke that uptrend, that very steep uptrend from its May's lows when it bounced off its 200-day moving average. I look at that June breakout level. I think there's some room to the downside. Let's see how it trades today. It was up a little bit. It was down a little bit. Now it's up a little bit again. Um, I really think it could matter how the market trades. But let's go to the SMH guy. That's the semiconductor ETF. I appreciate that. NVIDIA that. Yes. is one of the 
largest holdings in that in Taiwan Semi, the two uh, largest there. Look at you had that breakout. It was primarily powered by Nvidia and by AMD, a name that you have been pounding the table on for a very long time. You broke out, you failed. Now you're at that uptrend that dates all the way back to last fall. Here, it's a pretty crucial technical level for the SMH. Without question, you drew the trend line. You see where the 200-day moving average comes in. You did have that false breakout. Now we're right back to the trend line. We'll see. Listen, you've said it a number of times. Taiwan Semi should be a lot higher. Intel can't get out of its own way. Qualcomm's been floundering. Really, the only thing that has powered this has been, to your point, AMD and NVIDIA. And it's interesting. There is a wild card out there with NVIDIA. If that arm holding steel doesn't go through, it makes you wonder what's going to happen to the stock. A lot of things to like about NVIDIA, but a lot of things to be concerned about here and SMH, I know that's sort of a push me, pull you, one dog's looking one way, the other, the other way, uh, but that's what we have to do here. The next call I want to take a look at, obviously, Morgan Stanley. This is really interesting to me that they named both Disney and Netflix as top picks. You would think it's one or the other, uh, but they're naming both. I, I have my thoughts on Disney. I have my thoughts on Netflix. I'm curious what you think. I will say quickly, uh, I love Disney. Obviously, I haven't been there in a long time, but on valuation, that's expensive. And Netflix has been in the sideways action now for the last seemingly year. What are your thoughts on this call? Because I do think it's a pretty aggressive one by Morgan Stanley. It's funny, you know, we were just talking about valuation in NVIDIA and, um, you know, so to say, ah, Disney's expensive, it's always been expensive relative to its peers, right? So it's got a premium brand, premium multiple here. Um, I like Disney. I think the expectations heading into the results weren't high. Again, the stock had been flatlining for a few months or so. The original uh, reaction um, was higher. I think the stock was trading up 5 6% in the post-market as that conference call was going on and sellers came in the next day. So the stock's lower than that. Um, we have a chart right there. Um, you know, to me, listen, I, I think that valuation will be the thing if they mis-execute, right, on their plan for Disney+. Plus. Um, then people will look back on it right now. Right now, I think it's fine. I do think it's interesting that Morgan Stanley makes them, as you do, both their top pick because they can both work for different reasons. Disney, I think their parks and experiences, about 25% of their total revenue pre-pandemic that was maybe as high as 40. We get back there and then they start basically get that flywheel going with that Disney Plus and the merchandising and the parks and all this stuff that they do, I think it will be deserving of that premium multiple. So I like Disney here. And lastly, on Netflix, I like Netflix too, just like Morgan Stanley. Um, I don't love the fact that it's unchanged on the year uh, when the NASDAQ is up 14% or so and the S&P is up 17%. But again, I think that these are secular shifts that are going on for both of these companies. It's not one versus the other. Yeah, no, I agree with you on that. And listen, Disney can work in both environments. Obviously, it's a stock that found its way during the pandemic. It's a stock that actually works on a reopening thing. We can make those arguments. But I say at 32 times next year's numbers, it's expensive. And that 168 level, the 200-day moving average, is absolutely in play. I look at Netflix, and I love Reed Hastings. And we've talked about Netflix for years on Fast Money. But this stock has really gone nowhere now for the last year. It's fascinating that it's been in this very well-defined range. And we find ourselves exactly at the same price we were Seemingly yeah. this time last year, if you made me choose, uh, we play the game, uh, would you rather? I yeah. would actually rather Netflix over Disney, but I can understand how both could work. But the wild card here is sort of Viacom. And that you look at that chart, and that is really, really interesting. Obviously, you saw that big move to the upside, that whole Reddit rebellion, Wall Street bets. We know the story behind it. Huge short squeeze. By the way, Viacom took the opportunity to raise capital, I think around $85 or so a share, good for them. But we've been going sideways around this $41 level for quite some time. I think the risk-reward here 
for long trade sets up really well. What are your thoughts on Viacom, Dan? I agree with that. I mean, like that technical, like that move from 40 to 100 back to 40, it was the Wall Street bets. It was Archegos, that uh, family office that blew up, that kept on buying it and went down, um, you know, in a straight line. I've never seen anything like that. I mean, I've seen some things like that. Usually there's fraud involved. Uh, in this instance, it seems like investors can't really figure out what to do with it. But we were just talking about those streaming assets of Disney and Netflix. And I think Paramount Plus, there was a positive mention in the street um, about that asset. They just did a deal with Comcast for um, combining some of those streaming assets in Europe. To me, this one makes sense. A $40 billion enterprise value, I think it probably finds a home in a larger media platform. And I'll just mention this guy about the Netflix. You know, we might get to a point where we see some strategic MA in a big way soon. And maybe Netflix floundering, maybe Spotify floundering, maybe they put those two entities together. Reed Hastings, um, you know, to me, could be an empire builder. He's that sort of um, CEO. I know you feel that way. They probably just need to diversify and have some different mediums to cross sell. I would say seven or eight years ago, I said it on the show, I said it a number of times that Disney should have bought Netflix and, yeah. and obviously for a number of different reasons. And then you would have had your heir apparent in the form of Reed Hastings. It made a lot of sense now. Obviously, it doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense at this valuation, at this market cap. But it was a thought back then. In terms of Viacom, I think the risk reward for trade sets up really well. We are probably going OT here, Dan. I just want to alert our friends that if you have an 11 o'clock, just give us a few minutes. We're probably going over. Next chart we have to look at just to wrap this up is the S&P 500, which I don't know if this is a, an angling giraffe or a hungry alligator or some, some sort of hippo or something, but <laughs> it's in this very well-defined uptrend for quite some time. But, you know, we find ourselves precariously close to breaking through that downtrend line that, that you drew, that uptrend line on the, on the lower end of things. That 200-day moving average, by the way, folks, comes in right around 4,000 or so for you playing your home game. Obviously a little bit different here. What are your thoughts on the S&P? Well, listen, you know, I draw those lines back to last fall, right? And those were the last real bouts of volatility. In September 2020, we had a 10% peak to trough decline. And then into the election, we had nearly a 10% peak to trough decline. Um, and since then, you know, the the, the sell-offs- 11 o'clock. Sorry, there, continue. There please. we go. The sell-offs have gotten narrower and narrower. And we've gone, I think, at least 200 days without a 5% peak to trough decline. If we get through that trend line, we're going to be on our way to down 5%. I think the next real level is that mid-July low, which would be about 4,200 or so. And I'll just say this. I mean, obviously, Delta is slowing things down. It's slowing the global reflation trade down um, or the reopening trade, whatever you want to call it here. And at some point, I think that should be discounted in valuations and give investors an opportunity to set up for a late-year rally, if that makes sense. I agree. Listen, you know where my thoughts are. You know, I think if and when we break that line, this the sell-off is going to be precipitous. It's going to come out of seemingly nowhere. I don't know what the catalyst is be. I will tell you what's going on in China now. The fact that our market is not taking into consideration is fascinating. And don't discount this Afghanistan situation, not because of what's going on necessarily over there, although it's heartbreaking. But what does it mean? What does it do? Does it empower the likes of China to sort of put their foot on the gas in terms of what's going on in Taiwan? I think there are a lot of headwinds out there that the market is not taking into consideration. Obviously, we saw the VIX get up around 21. It'll be interesting to see if that continues to hold. But that's, as they say, Dan, what makes a market. By the way, for you folks longing for Mr. Butters of facts that he is on vacation this week and next, he will be back in September. But just to summarize, Dan, a lot of things going on. For me, that Palantir story 
is fascinating. We'll see what it means. We talked about the S&P 500 chart. Take us out of here at 1046, Dan. Yeah, I think for all of you guys who think we're in a rip-roaring um, bull market because the NASDAQ and the S&P are up, you know, mid-teens uh, or so, um, there's a lot of stocks that don't act that well. Disney and Netflix were two of them. They're basically unchanged on the year. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunities. I think you want to see that broad market come back a little bit. We want to see a little bit of fear. You know, we had the VIX at 22 this morning. It hasn't been there in a very long time here. I think a little bit of a shakeout into Jackson Hole, into that September Fed meeting where people get comfortable with what a taper and possibly higher rates mean, that would be a good thing for the equity market. So that's my take. I'd love to see the S&P 500 get a little sloppy down there near 4,200. People kind of pounding the table like you saying, we're going to touch that 4,000 level. That's probably when you go in and buy. That is height delta variant fear, height of the taper tantrum. Look at you wrapping it up. Before we thank our sponsors, I just want to say, keep an eye on NVIDIA today, folks. If that closes red, Katie bar the door, as they say. Again, I don't know who Katie is, but you want to make sure she does bar that door. And I will say this as well. Palantir, I don't know what they're seeing, but I like it. I like it, Dan. I also like you. I love our sponsors. Today's at 1046 has been brought to you by FactSet, financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow. And of course, Open Exchange. They manage virtual meetings that matter for the top companies around the world. We will see you next week. What time, Dan? 1046, Thursday. That's right. See you later. Yeah.